you're here for the baby dedication, thanks for joining us today. If you were here last Sunday for Easter and you came back today, thanks for coming back. My name's Mark. I'm one of the elders here, and uh, I get to bring the, the, the message this morning. We're in Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 13. And uh, before we get there, just a couple things. Uh, Leslie leaned over during the baby deca- dedication and pointed out something really cool. Three of those parents grew up here, which I assume means three of those parents were dedicated here as babies, and now they've grown up and they're dedicating their own children. And isn't that, isn't that cool just to see the faithfulness of God? We love being a multi-generational church, and it's just sort of extra special when the generations are all uh, here, here together in that unusual way. So Catherine, Daniel, and Rebecca all grew up here, and it's exciting to see them now. Uh, with their own kids. Um, Next Sunday, uh, special Sunday, uh, member meeting day. It's not a business meeting. It's a a time to get together as a congregation and talk about what Christ is doing amongst us. And uh, this this particular uh, member meeting, we're going to be just highlighting uh, the people that God has has, uh, gathered together that are serving us and the staff here and, and as elders so you can understand better who's doing what. And uh, for the message, we're going to just take a a one-week break from Romans, um, and we're going to talk about the church. The church is amazing. God loves the church. The church is the apple of his eye. Jesus has a bride. It's called the church. He's coming back for the church. And so part of falling in love with Christ is is then falling in love with his people, with 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 the church. And yet we find that as, as that happens in our lives, we can, we can get distracted sometimes. Our affections can, can uh, drift in other directions. And so uh, next Sunday, we're going to just talk about, be an opportunity to think about our priorities and <clears throat> consider how are we, how are we doing with the, with the church. It's a kind of a spring cleaning uh, time. We, you know, in the springtime, we switch winter clothes for summer clothes or we clean the gutters out or, you know, there, there are things to do on a regular basis. One of those is just to think about our priorities. And we're going to just highlight the glory and the priority of the, of the church from the letter uh, the, from the prophet Haggai chapter 1. This morning, we are uh, in the, the middle of sort of the application section of, of Paul's letter to the Romans, these chapters 12 through 16. And we're in chapter 13, verses 8 through 14. And Charlotte is going to uh, read the passage for us. Fulfilling the law through love. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then, 
Let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly in as the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Thank you, Charlotte. Let's pray. Father, as we quiet our hearts in this moment, as we have just heard your voice to us in your living word, we ask for your presence and for your help. We pray for the presence and empowering of the Holy Spirit. We ask, God, if I could just ask one thing from this message. I pray that you would dazzle us with the glory of Jesus Christ. Let us see your glorious Son, and in light of who he is, let us live new and transformed lives. This we pray in his name. Amen. Well, <clears throat> last Sunday was Easter, and uh, it was a joy to proclaim on Easter Sunday that he's risen. He's not in the tomb. He's risen, and every Sunday is really uh, uh, just, just a, a, another Easter. The church meets uh, not on the seventh day, Saturday, but on the first day, Sunday, because it's the day of the resurrection. And um, Jesus' resurrection has sparked a worldwide revolution. Through Jesus Christ, we can come into a new status with God. We call that justification, being right with God. We have a new citizenship. We are citizens of a heavenly kingdom, a kingdom that's coming. And the new age, we live in this present age that's passing away, but the new age has already begun. The, 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 the coming of Christ and the resurrection brings about the presence of the future, and Jesus will return. That's the sunrise that we'll see in this passage. So in light of this arriving of the kingdom of God and the king of kings, in light of this new age that's taking root in the midst of the present age, how do we live? Having become followers of Christ, if you have pledged your allegiance to Jesus, if you have uh, taken up your cross to follow him, how do we live? What does that look like? If you're wondering about Christianity, you may wonder, well, what are the ethics? What does it look like to, to actually follow Jesus in practical ways? Well, this section of uh, the letter to the Romans is a, is a practical section. It's kind of a how does this work section. And what we see in our passage today is that the Christian life is lived not in a cave, not in isolation, not in some sort of insular Christian ghetto experience, but it's lived in relationships. Can't understand this passage if there isn't a context of relationships. And, and those relationships involve relating with other Christians in a local church like this, but also relating with the people in our city. So how do you live the Christian life? Well, the, the, the letter to the Romans lays it out for us in, in these two stages, chapters 1 through 11. The first thing you know about how to live the Christian life is you need to know the gospel. 
11 chapters about the gospel. Who is Christ? What is this great salvation that's the power of God to rescue anyone who calls on the name of the Lord? What does it mean to be brought into right relationship with him? Not through our efforts and, and religious works, but through receiving the gift of that through Christ and then to begin to walk that out in the power of the Holy Spirit in this new life. And, and then there's this tilt point at chapter 12 where we move from sort of the concepts and the explanation of, of this rescue and salvation to like the, 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 the street level, how does it work out? And the, the critical verses here, I just want to read them again because we have to have Romans 12, 1 and 2 in our minds as we go through Romans 12 through 16. So Romans 12, 1 and 2, these are critical verses that inform the rest of the letter. He says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. So in light of the gospel, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Present your bodies Renew your minds, right? So where is holiness expressed in the Christian life? It's expressed in our bodies. And how do we get there to live that way? Well, we need minds that are not conformed to this present age and its value system, but they're transformed by the gospel and by the word of God. So in other words, there's a kind of a combination of knowledge and skills. There are things we need to know, and then there are skills. There are practices that we need to then engage in order to be able to effectively live the Christian life. You know how to do this. This happens all the time when we sort of take on a new thing in life. Let's think, for example, this morning about learning how to drive. All right? So some of you know how to drive. Some of you are learning how to drive. Some of you are waiting till you can learn how to drive. But the process is pretty much the same for everybody, right? There's some, there's some knowledge you got to get. Like, you got to learn those signs, right? You missed the sign on the test, you got to start over. Go back to square one. You got to learn those signs. You got to learn where all the, the controls are on the car and how those different pedals work. There's some things you just have to know. But then there's some skills you got to develop. You got to get behind the wheel. You got to start driving. At some point, you have to merge onto the beltway. It's a terrifying moment right? It doesn't matter which seat you're sitting in. I, I guarantee you it's terrifying for both people. I've been there, right? And so there's this kind of this combination of knowledge and skills that you need in order to be a driver. Well, it's the same with Christianity. There is a combination of knowledge and skills. And so through these chapters 12 and 13, we've been learning the knowledge and skills that we need to be able to live the Christian life. In chapter 12, we learn about the gifts of the Spirit that we, that we need uh, uh, to, to share with one another. We learn about the marks of a Christian and how we grow in love even with people uh, that, that uh, are our enemies. We learn about governing authorities and how we relate as citizens of a heavenly kingdom, but still citizens of, of, of a place on earth here under governing authorities. We learn about that in the first part of chapter 13. Today, just two simple things. And this is very practical. Pay the debt of love, pay the debt of love, and put on Christ. Very simple. Okay, so that's what we're doing today. Pay the debt of love and put on Christ. In other words, the Christian life is lived out in relationships. 
So we want to ask, how can we live attractive lives with the aroma of Christ in our city without conforming to its values? So this passage touches on these things. So let's start with pay the debt of love. This is where the first paragraph, verses 8 through 10 of our passage goes. Now, if you were here back on April 7th, we, we looked at Romans 13, 1 to 7, how to relate to governing authorities. And we saw that God calls his people to submit to governing authorities in a way that honors him. If you aren't sure what that looks like, you weren't here for that message, you can go back and listen to it. But the passage closes with this call, pay to all what is owed to them. Right? Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, and so on. And so then verse 8, the beginning of today's passage, picks up on that language of paying what's owed. And it says, owe no one anything except to love one another. It says, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. So there's this language of paying what you owe, this language of debt. There's one more debt here. He's already talked about paying taxes and giving respect and so on. So what does this mean? Owe no one anything except to love each other. And well, some have seen here there's sort of a ban on Christians ever borrowing money. You shouldn't owe anything to anybody, literally, so don't take out a mortgage or something like that. Now, consumer debt in this country is a huge problem. There's lots to say about that, but not from this passage. That's not what's in view here. If you want to know more about that, talk to Dave Falk or Kim Pagoda and, and, or go to our website and uh, click on the personal finances link and we've got people that would love to help you with that. But the debt that's in this passage is not a financial one. It's a relational one. Okay, the obligation here, owe no one anything, the obligation here isn't an obligation to a bank. It's an obligation to a neighbor. Love one another. Love the other. Now, okay, what neighbor are we talking about here? We're just talking about the church. We're talking about neighbors in our city. Well, there's a signal in verse 8. He says, for the, uh, excuse me, owe no one anything except to love each other. When you hear that each other language in the New Testament, that one another language, usually that means the church. In fact, back in chapter 12, he says, love one another with brotherly affection. So clearly that's a reference to loving God's people and, and, and living it out in the context of the church. And so our neighbor is, is at the least the people that we're in church with together. But I think there's more to that. When Jesus quotes the same uh, Leviticus 19, 18 uh, verse that you should love your neighbor as yourself as a summary of the law, he then also tells a story about a neighbor. It's called the Good Samaritan, the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? And that story is about somebody who loves someone that he previously didn't know. Not a sort of a fellow believer, fellow church member, but somebody that he previously didn't know. And so this love for neighbor expands not just within the circle of those we're in church with, but it expands to people beyond. In fact, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink back in chapter 12. Clearly, we're to love our enemies as well. And so the idea is you love your brothers and sisters, you love your enemies, and you love everybody in between, right? And think about the life and ministry of Jesus. Isn't this exactly what he came to do? For the glory of the triune God, the Son of God, comes to earth. And how does he live? He, he loves his disciples. He loves the 
lepers and the outcasts. He loves his enemies. He loves his neighbors enough to die for people like us while we were still sinners so we could be made right with God. What love this is that our Savior showers upon people like us so that having been loved in that way by him, we might then in turn be able to pay a debt of love to our neighbors. We might fulfill the law of love with our neighbors. We might be able to love one another. So you may pay off your mortgage, but there's one debt that never goes away. You may pay off all your financial obligations, but this debt of love is a call from God to fulfill the law by loving our neighbors, loving each other and loving the other. Christianity truly is a religion of love. God is the God of love. And this can seem to sort of sync up nicely with a culture that's, that's all for love, right? The Beatles sang, love is all you need. Let each person be free to love whomever they want. That's one of the one of the cultural narratives of our day, isn't it? Everybody should be free to love whomever they want, however they want. Love doesn't impose its values on others. These are sort of part of the cultural narrative that's going on around us in our culture today. But we need to ask from places like this and ask in the midst of our culture, what is love? If we're to love our neighbor, how do we know what that looks like? How do you know if what feels like love truly is? It's an important question, isn't it? I was thinking this week about one of the really dark, tragic stories in Scripture. It's back in 2 Samuel. King David was a great king and had a great heart for God in many ways, but he, had, he, made, some, he made some mistakes and he had some ungodly parts of his life. And one of the downsides of the way David lived was he had a bunch of wives who then had, all had a bunch of children. And so he had all these uh, children that were half-brothers and sisters with each other. And one of his sons, Amnon, was attracted to his half-sister named Tamar. It says he understood his feelings for her, for her as he loved her, which meant he desired to have sex with her. And in the tragedy of this story, he maneuvers and manipulates a way to get her into his bedroom, and then he rapes her. And then it says perceptively, when that was done, he hated her with a hatred that was as great as the love that he had before the act. Can you see what's happening here? He professed a feeling of love, but it was really lust. It was outside the bounds. So how do we know what love really is? How do we know where the boundaries are? Well, we get, we get some boundaries right here. In fact, in this list here, we get four commandments, four of the Ten Commandments. What are the Ten Commandments doing in the New Testament? I thought that was Old Testament. I thought that passed away. Aren't we under grace now? Love needs boundaries. And we get here Paul reviewing four of the Ten Commandments. We get Commandments 7, 8, uh, 6, and 10. They're just a, just a tad out of order, but they're the second part of the, the Ten Commandments, which deals with relationships with other human beings. So he says, you shall not commit adultery. Think about loving your neighbor. It's not loving to sleep with someone else's spouse. 
It's not loving to sleep with someone you're not married to. Instead, we're called to live lives of purity and faithfulness, whether we're single or married. Commandment number six is next on the list. You shall not murder. Think about your neighbor again. You can't love your neighbor if you do violence to him or if you hate her or if you kill someone. Instead, we're called to be patient and kind even with our enemies. Commandment number eight, you shall not steal. It's obviously not an act of love to take someone else's stuff. It's not yours. Commandment number 10, craving. You shall not covet. Craving someone else's stuff breeds a thankless discontent in our lives, and it can result in resenting someone else or worse, as in it was envy that drove the religious leaders to kill Jesus. Go back and read the Gospels and note the theme of envy and jealousy there. It's not a victimless crime. So there are boundaries to love. There's a shape to love. There's, now, the minimum here is sort of do no harm, right? Love does no wrong to a neighbor. That's the, that's the negative side, the pro- prohibition side. There's a positive side. The, the, the flip side is to actively do good. Love your neighbor. Fulfill the law. Now, this, this sounds great, doesn't it? Until we have to start working it out in real life. Because often when we find ourselves in difficult situations, what comes instinctively to us isn't, oh, you know what? I love you and I owe you a debt of love and I want to relate to you that way. Like, for example, recently I was at the airport taking my parents to go home to California. My parents are getting older. There's nobody around, pulled up, helped them get their bags inside, helped my mom find a place to sit. I came out and there was a ticket on my car. And I saw the lady who had just written the ticket. And I I immediately thought, I'm a pastor. I'm a Christian. I love you and I owe you a debt of love. (laughs) I didn't. I was angry. I was irritated. And I let her know that. And I regret that now. If you're here and you can hear me, I'm sorry. I apologize. (laughs) Please forgive me. But, But what came instinctively to me wasn't, I owe you a debt of love, but you owe me. Take this stupid ticket and tear it up because I didn't deserve it. That's what, that's what the default is apart from gospel transformation. Right? You know how this works. How about parents? You've got a child that defies you. Immediately you think and respond, oh, I love you and I want to show patience and kindness to you. It's like if you just get on board with my program, everything is going to go great here. Right? I mean, is these... The gospel transforms the way we interact with other people. And it plays out in the most everyday of situations. Paying the debt of love requires a transforming power of the gospel to shift us from you owe me to I owe you. Apart from Christ, we are all hardwired to love ourselves first and love other people as it's convenient to fulfilling our desire to love ourselves. That's how we work, apart from the grace of God and the transforming power that comes through the gospel. And praise God, we have a Savior who didn't work that way. Praise God, we have a Savior who lived the way we want to live. He lived out these commandments. Jesus' character reflects the love for neighbor revealed in these commandments. Jesus not only reflected and revealed this way of living, Jesus 
kept the commandments for us. And then Jesus paid the penalty for our commandment breaking, for every failure to love our neighbor. Jesus paid the penalty for that so that we could be forgiven as we sang this morning. Those sins could be covered and washed away and we could be made new so that we could have a new life in Christ empowered by the Holy Spirit to enable us to love other people. To love like he loves. So, what does it look like? How do we live out the Christian life? Love fulfills the law, right? And so we pay the debt of love because we've been loved so incredibly by God in Christ. Now we then turn around and we love our neighbors. So just, just pause for reflection in your own life. Who has God put around you? Who did you see last week? Who are you going to see next week? Ask yourself, how can I love that other person? Maybe it's somebody that you live with. Is there somebody that you live with, maybe a roommate, family member, spouse, and you haven't been mean, unkind, you're just sort of overlooking them. Maybe God's stirring you to be more active in displaying love. Or maybe there's somebody you're avoiding because it's difficult. Maybe you're a student. How about this? How can I love my campus? How can, how can our campus be different because we Christians are there showing love? How can I love the parents at my child's school? Where can this work out in our lives? You know, as a, as a church, we, we want to be the kind of church that loves our neighbors here in our city. We want to we want to extend love to one another, but we want to ex- a love that extends out to our neighbors too. I love the way our building is increasingly being used by lots of neighbor organizations. I love the s- summer it's going to bring a vacation Bible school where just kids from the neighborhood can be invited in to come, have a good time, learn about the Lord, give parents a break during the summer. I love that there were Homeless people sleeping here last month. I hope we can keep looking for ways as a congregation that we can, we can pay the debt of love to our, to our neighbors and be a congregation with big hearts for our city. Pay the debt of love. Fulfill the law through love. And then second, put on Christ. Put on Christ. He says, well, I'm going to read verse 11 in just a second, but before I do, I just want you to notice what, what, what we're going to look at there. What we're going to hear is this new life from the resurrected Christ, it brings a new approach to our neighbors. It also changes the way we think about time, right? If I ask you what time is it, you'll say it's 1118 or something like that, right? That's one way of thinking about time, but the time that we bump into in this passage is a different way of thinking about time. We can tell time chronologically, but the other way of thinking about time is through the ages. There are big ages, big moments in time. Creation, fall, redemption, new creation. So I want you just to listen to the time that we live in now. Besides this, you know the time. 
that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual, sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but here's the call. Put on Christ. Put on Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. We heard this morning about that wonderful moment, the Rancho 3M team up at the cross. It's early morning. Go up and it's dark. You ever had, have you ever been outside or been in a car? Completely dark, right? And then the first thing that happens isn't that you see the sun. What happens first? It, it just starts getting just a little bit lighter. Is that it? I think, yeah, it is. It's getting a little lighter. And there's, there's just a, a gradual lightening of the sky over in the east. And then at some moment, the sun pops up on the horizon. That's what we're talking about here. We're talking about the sun rise, the end of night and the beginning of the day. And the idea is that sun that's going to pop up over the horizon, that's the return of the Lord. It's the end of this age and the beginning of the new age. And what he's saying here is that the light is already coming up over the horizon. Can't see the sun yet. Hasn't happened, but it's close. And you say, well, that's nice, but haven't Christians been waiting for 2,000 years? That doesn't seem close. That seems like a long time. And I want to just say, no, remember the kind of time that we're talking about. We're not talking about chronology here. We're not talking about seconds. We're talking about chapters and pages. And so it's like a, it's like a book, the book of God's saving work in history. And Christ has come. He's risen from the dead. The new creation has begun in the resurrection of Christ. And the next thing that happens, the next page that's going to turn in what God is doing in the world and in history, the next thing that happens is the return of Jesus Christ. That's the sunrise. That's when the day comes. And so he's saying, church, you're part of that time. You don't live in the darkness anymore. That's the old way. That's the old age. That's not you anymore. You live for the sun. You live for the day. So you no longer live in works of darkness, but put on the armor of light and put on Christ. He's not saying Christ will return in a short time. He is saying Christ may return at any time. See, that it's an important difference. So the, the cool thing is, you can say every morning, salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. And it's true. So the question is, what kind of life do you want to be living when the sunrise happens? What kind of a life do you want to be living when Jesus returns in person? And the answer here is, well, we, we sure don't want to be doing the works of darkness, Right? We don't want to be doing the kinds of things that happen at night. He gives us a, a little list here. Orgies, wild parties, drunkenness. So we want to be living lives not of excessive drinking. And then he touches on the topic of sex. He talks about sexual immorality, sensuality, which means sort of abandoning yourself to lust. So he's, he's talking about sex outside those boundaries that God gives to us in his commands. Marriage between one man and one woman for life. Or so, so 
That's where the gift of sex is to be enjoyed. And outside of that, that's darkness. That's not where we want to live. Quarreling, strife, jealousy, these are community destroyers. And so he's saying, no, that's the old way. We don't want to live that way. People, that's how people live at night. And it, it was true then, it's true now, isn't it? People behave differently at night during, than during the day, don't they? Still like that. You ever seen a sobriety checkpoint at 2 in the afternoon? No, they're 2 in the morning, right? 3 in the morning. Because there are things people do at night that they don't do in the same way during the day. Now, this is a strange passage in a way because he's writing to a church. Isn't it a little weird? He's writing to Christians. Why does he need to tell Christian people these things? Because when we come to faith in Christ, when we're converted and made new through the gospel, the desire for the old ways isn't immediately and magically wiped away. Those desires remain in our minds and in our hearts, in our affections. So we make no provision for the flesh to gratify its, keyword, desires. Right? So we're all carrying around a bunch of desires, and Christians are carrying around sort of two sets of desires. This war going on inside of us that we saw back in chapter 7. So we have the desire to please the Lord, but there are still these desires to live in the way of the flesh, the old way. And so we have to recognize that those desires are not only in us, but they're also circulating and being broadcasted in the society that we live in. Always been that way. It was that way in Rome. It's that way in Northern Virginia and Metro D.C. It's that way everywhere in the world. As long as we live in this present age, it will be like that. And those Ways of living in darkness that are out there in the world are calling to those desires that still live in the most well-intended of Christians. It's still possible for Christians to end up plunging into the old, dark ways of living. And so we need strategies to keep us from those things. And we need to be aware it's not only a call to not live in sexual immorality or drunkenness or uh, sensuality or those kinds of things, but also not to watch them on our screens, not to participate in those things in that way as well. So what are our strategies? How do we do this? How do we live this way? Well, he says, look, there's, a, there's sort of a put off and a put on. He says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Let me just start there. In other words, don't pack a lunch for sin, Right? Like, if, if, if your car is going to take you to have sex with someone you're not married to, don't put any gas in the tank. Let it be on empty so you can't get there. Make no provision for that. If your computer is going to bring you to porn, don't use it. Or don't use it without a filter or with a strategy for some accountability. If going to the party means end up getting drunk, then make other plans. Don't Go, that's the old way of living. Those are like the pajamas that you were wearing when you lived for the night, but you don't live that way anymore. You've got a new life, and so you've switched clothes, and now you put on the armor of light, and you put on Christ. I love this. I love Christianity. I love the gospel and what it calls us to. Here's the burdensome command to be a Christian. You ready? Put on Jesus Christ. Clothe yourself, fill your mind and heart and affections and desires with the most incredible, wise, giving, powerful, loving person in the history of the universe. 
Ah, I want to live that way. That's attractive. That's not burdensome. That's a delight. Clothe yourselves with Christ. Put on Christ. Now, how do you do that? Like, what does that look like for you? What are the sort of the habits of grace that you need to be able to put on Christ? Well, that's a question I want to encourage you to work on. And you probably have answers to that question. You probably have ways that you do this. You might not even think about it in this way, but I want to encourage you to think about these things and talk about this with, with other people and encourage one another. I want to just give you a quick list of, of just nine very quick habits of grace, nine quick ways of putting on Christ that I do or other people that I, I, I know do and have been, been suggested and so on. Let this get, be a starter list for you. This isn't a complete list. This isn't a, an entire list. This isn't everything. This is just a get the, get the juices flowing list. How do you put on Christ? One, sing. Oh, singing is such a gift. Here's, here's a song I've been singing this week. Just I've been focused on this line. Awake my soul and sing of him who died for thee and hail him as thy matchless king for all eternity. Can you hear what's in that song? I'm telling my soul, stop sleeping and wake up to the important things. That's King Jesus. Wake my soul. Sing of him who died for you. Sing. Find great songs and just get them and hang on to them. Remember your baptism. Just go back. When did it happen? Who was there? What did you say or what did you write? How did God meet you at that time? Here's one. Read your Bible. Okay. And don't put it down until you found Jesus. Until there's been a sighting of the Savior, just say, Lord, help me. I want to see you. Yesterday at the men's breakfast, sitting in a group, Tony Rossell was leading the discussion, doing a great job. And one of the questions he asked was, when we kind of get in that dark place, how do you get out? And I'm sitting next to Freddie Aaron, and, and Freddie just goes like this. He just goes, he's tapping on his Bible. I thought, that's right. That's a habit of grace. That's how we put on Christ. Number five, pray the prayer Jesus taught us. Oh, I skipped share, didn't I? Sorry. Number four, share. If, if you get to tell somebody else something that you experienced from God in your private devotions, it will greatly energize your soul. If you get to share good news about Jesus with somebody who isn't a Christian, that will help you see Jesus more clearly. If you get to share with another believer, that will help you see and experience Christ. We put on Christ as we share him with others. Number five, pray the prayer that Jesus taught us. I had Freddie on one side of the discussion yesterday. George Opie was on the other side, and that was one of the things he said. He just said, pray the prayer Jesus taught us. Pray the, I pray the Lord's Prayer. That's what he said he does to get out of that dark place. Number six, Read the Gospels and focus on Jesus. What kind of a person is he? How does he live as a human being? How does he relate to God? How does he relate to other people? How, how can I, through the grace and power of the Gospel, by the Holy Spirit, live more like that? Number seven, read one page, one page of some Christ-exalting book. If you don't know what, any Christ-exalting books, go in our bookstore. There's a bunch of them in there. Come talk to me. I'd love to give you one. Before you go to sleep, put something Christ-exalting in your brain so when you wake up in the middle of the night, that's what you're thinking about. Put on Christ before you go to sleep. Number eight, ask God to fill you with the Spirit. Do you know what happens to people who are filled with the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit points to Jesus like a flashlight in a dark room. 
what he loves to do. He loves to exalt Christ. Number nine, rehearse the gospel. Rehearse the gospel maybe from a recent sermon, from a scripture passage. Preach the gospel to yourself. Find your own ways. You will. Put on Christ. How do we live the Christian life? What does it look like? How do we do it practically? We pay the debt of love. We put on Christ. So with that in mind, let's sing a song that will help us focus on Christ. Be thou my vision. So if the band would come back up. And as they're doing that, I just, when Doreen came during the worship time and said, I just had this impression, people who are weary, and Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. And I just, that resonated with me. And I just, you know, as we're talking about this new way of living, putting on Christ, it's not a, it's not a hard road. It's a road of rest. It's a way of living that's full of rest. And if you find yourself in that weary place this morning, even as we sing, I just want to encourage you to just take this as an opportunity to cast those cares on the Lord. The old way of living is when you find trouble, you, you meet it by working harder. That's not the gospel way. That's the old way. That's nothing wrong with hard work. Hard work's important. But we will never solve all our problems simply by working harder. We need to find a way to, to bring our troubles to Christ, to rest in him, to cast our cares on him, to find refuge in him in the midst of our troubles. And so as we sing this song, if you find yourself in that weary, burdened place this morning, I just want to encourage you, let this song be a a prayer for you. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. It's not all up to you. There are great, vast, infinite, amazing resources available to you through your new relationship in Christ. So let's all stand together and sing.